to uh, recent successes. Yeah. And uh, tonight's bottle brought to us by a very happy client. Yeah, very nice uh, gentleman we've been representing for uh, about two and a half years now, a little over two years. Brought us a beautiful Macallan uh, when we had 13, 14 charges withdrawn on Friday. He was wrongfully accused, and um, you can give us a little bit more details about it, but it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. Long yeah. haul, eh? Well, charges withdrawn without even a peace bond required because... No peace bond. Uh, the complainant clearly had no credibility. But the funniest moment, and this was resolved after uh, we put together an application explaining what evidence we wanted to use at trial because we have to do that now. And um, <clears throat> so uh, one of the charges was sexual assault with a weapon. And as I was writing out the uh, background of the story, it was like, I made it clear, with a weapon, to wit, a dildo. Right? <laughs> and... Uh, and it's like, normally they'll say, to wit, a hammer or a, a gun or whatever whatever it is, right? But yeah, to wit, a dildo. But what makes that even funnier is that part of the evidence in the complainant's statement was that she had herself purchased this weapon along with another other similar weapons. And she had taken time to practice using them on herself to make sure they wouldn't hurt. So it was a rare case where somebody made sure a weapon wouldn't hurt them. <laughs> a weapon. It's, it's an interesting uh, case because we, um, and, and it sort of feeds into what we want to talk about a little bit about the legislation which came in that we were screaming about a while ago, which was Bill C-51, where um, the defense, which came after the Gomeshi case, where the defense would have to bring an application with records that are in their, whether they're pictures or messages, text messages or emails and we want to cross-examine on them, we have to bring these applications. So we're talking about this application we have to draft in this insane case where it's a, a four-year, five-year affair between these two people and there's these multiple allegations after they break up of sexual assault and extortion and everything else. And um, the writing of this application was was fun to some extent, even though it's hard to say because our poor client had to suffer through this, but it was there was some enjoyment in our writing and, and trying to get the point across. But, you know, we were successful at the end of the day in having all charges withdrawn pretty close to the eve of trial. Mm-hmm. But um, when we take a look back now and the Supreme Court of Canada is dealing with the constitutionality of these very sections, how do we feel about it now? How do we feel about this new legislation and how does it impact how we defend our clients and how we look at the system now? Well, I think um, it's kind of like you can take lemons and make lemonade, right? Right. And and that's kind of what we've done in a way, like they all eliminated preliminary hearings for most of these cases. So it's a chance, you know, to kind of do that mixed with a, like a reasonable prospect of conviction package where you're really putting your case together and giving them one last chance to look at it and say, are you really sure this is what you want to do? And a lot of these cases, I mean, it doesn't benefit a complainant to go to to a public trial when there's overwhelming evidence that they're clearly lying. It's not going to it's not going to make them feel better about the the process, you know, we're just kind of sparing them the humiliation. Yeah, so this was one of those instances where because of the uh, constellation of evidence that we had from, you know, records that were produced in in a companion civil case that they launched suing for damages and money so we had all sorts of documentation and everything else that we were able to establish in in writing out this application and providing 
uh, a memo to the crown that, that this is this is fabricated it's not true but what what's interesting now is because we've done since the new legislation a dozen or more of these applications and we've turned it into an opportunity to have written advocacy on behalf of our clients and you know it's interesting we're able to get before a trial judge a fair amount of information that in the normal course of events we wouldn't necessarily uh, be able to put forward. So for example, we put forward the statements and it just happens in one of these statements in this case that was just, you'd read it and you're just going, oh, it's just bullshit. You can't believe any of this. And so it's turned into an interesting sort of study as we go along that in fact, it's been really quite helpful and beneficial to our clients. And, and on the flip side, make an interesting point that for those complainants where really it's not, there's no, there's little to no merit. It spares the trial and the embarrassment. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was such a, a weird case too, in which she was saying uh, that everything was extorted from her. Like she was forced into this under threat, but then she was like, oh yeah, it was consensual, you know? And so like the way when it kept flip-flopping back and forth, trying to collect the information and make it coherent. I mean, her, her statements themselves were incoherent practically. She's saying, I really wanted to end it. I've been trying to end the relationship for a long time. And yet then when she says, you, really, you know, the cop says, you really seem like you love this guy. She's like, yeah, I would drop anything. Like I would drop my entire life and leave on a dime if he asked me to go with him anywhere. And yeah, and we have to be a bit careful because there's still other aspects of this case, which is alive. But, you know, so we have to be a bit careful. But it's a perfect example of how and, and I think this is fair to both sides. Sometimes not everything is clean. Not everything is linear. Not everything is coherent and makes perfect sense. People can have a bond in a relationship and still things can be criminal. But this was this was a, a unique situation where when you were able to take a look at everything and, and the way we packaged it was able to, to tell our client's story where we were able to give over a narrative that, that was readable and understandable and coherent and, and weave together all this information. We were able to litigate it through this you know, really interesting process now where it ultimately with, and, and we had an excellent crown attorney, just an excellent crown attorney, he was smart, engaged and fair and did the right thing and withdrew the charges. Um, and so in this case, this withdrawal is very meaningful to the client um, because it is a sense of vindication, but there is a downside, right? Because what happens when you're charged? And there's always a wrecker. Yeah, and it's such a hard, you know, we're dealing with this with clients where like, okay, so can I have my pictures and prints destroyed? And w will this be a problem when I apply for this job and that job? And it's a real issue that this province is not grasping with and our country's not grasping with. And it's bad. And we, we got to talk about this a little bit because it's very harmful. Yeah, it's whenever a client says, okay, well, um, uh, if I enter into a peace bond, um, will I have a criminal record? And the answer is, mm, depends what you mean by criminal record. People don't understand what that means. Because guess what? You already have one, even if they withdrew it uh, by yeah. a certain sense. So, because what you, people don't always understand is, you know, we have a database. The police have a database um, referred to it generally as CPIC. And anytime you're charged... Um, you know, or if there's any interaction, it gets logged and it appears. So when once you're in the system, 
it never gets really expunged. Yeah, like this is something I think we got to talk about because when we this this is this is really damaging to people and they can be completely innocent and still have this as a life altering event. So again, it's something that our clients don't understand and we try and explain and and I think politically speaking is is a very dangerous policy which is in place. So if you're charged with a domestic related offense or a sexual related offense in Ontario, the majority of the police services in Ontario will maintain the pictures and prints. They have their own policies. Um, and the actual information remains on the computer system for the police, which is shared across the province and with the RCMP. And that includes e even after we're talking about charges withdrawn, like your yeah. client in this case, uh, not even a peace bond, just a quote, you know, Crown basically says, yeah, there's no case here. This was um, nothing to see here. Uh, that guy's prints and photo and everything else will always be in the system. You know, the police force will never uh, get rid of it. If he ever applies to do any sort of work, what's called a vulnerable sector, you know, uh, check, then it there's going to be a hit there. Um, at, at which point he's likely not going to be able to volunteer or work in a, you know, with kids or anything of that nature, simply on the basis of he was once charged, even though the charges were withdrawn. It's devastating. Yeah, um, but at the same time, like there's been a lot of people who don't want to accept a peace bond because they think going to trial will vindicate them in some way, and they don't understand that there is no better vindication than having charges withdrawn either with or without a peace bond. Yeah, I, you know, a, a peace bond can be meaningless. It's a court order that just says do the following, but what's important is that the charges are withdrawn. But even if you go all the way to trial, I, this is important for us to discuss as a society because... I think it flows into what we were talking about. We want to remain in a police state. We love a police state for whatever reason. We've allowed government to enact these policies that flow down to our police services and our lives are forever changed, even though we're innocent. So let's say you're, you have been charged. You, you go all the way to trial. You're found not guilty. So the charges are di dismissed. And let's say you even have a jury trial. So where there's no reasons from a jury, you know, it's just a straight out acquittal without explaining why. So you feel, I'm innocent, yet you are a person who wants, you, you've got a, an MBA and you're applying at a bank to be a financial analyst. You'd like to go up in banking and be in finance. Guess what? You're not getting that job because that's a vulnerable sector search. It's going to produce a hit because the police won't get rid of it. And you'll never know exactly why, but you know why. That's why you're not getting the job. And what do they almost always say at the end of their decision? They say the Crown hasn't met the burden of proof. Right. But let's just forget about a judge. Let's just say you go in front of a jury. So it's a case, a sex assault, domestic related stuff. The jury says not guilty. So we don't have what we talked about many months ago about these compromised or qualified not guilty findings. You just get a straight out acquittal. But somebody truly is found not guilty, which happens a lot to us. But at the end of the day, you go to apply for your job at that bank or at that hospital or something or teaching, you're never getting that job. Yeah. 
And it's still presented publicly by advocates through the media. And so it's still presented as a failure of the justice system whenever somebody's acquitted. That's how they count acquittals. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, here's something I'm grappling with. And, and we have a client right now who is a, a brilliant student. We spoke about this before, who we're in the midst of appealing with the police why they won't expunge this. They basically have said, no, give us something. Um, so we're getting a transcript of the withdrawal, which doesn't say much other than there was no prospect of conviction. And they're still going to say no, so then you can go to court. Um, but the case law on this is not good. We live in a police state where you can be innocent and charges are withdrawn, but by the mere fact of being charged, the rest of your life is impacted. Your ability to earn a certain living is impacted. Your ability to pursue interests is impacted. We've seen it with that, uh, that MP who was elected, mm -hmm. where there was a charge withdrawn, and then the other candidate from the NDP said he's forfeited his right to hold office because he was charged with sexual assault. He, never mind the fact that he might have been innocent, and we have the presumption of innocence. In that mind of that candidate, you know, you forfeited your right to be to hold office. We're in a police state. We are in a police state where you can be innocent and are factually innocent, and you're still f***ed over by the system, and we're allowing this to happen, and nobody cares. We, we just don't see any discussion about this going on. I, I started kind of smiling because I, I remember you had a phone call today from uh, somebody just phoning in, you know, cold call or whatever to yeah, the yeah. office. And, and I didn't catch all of the conversation, but at the end, you're just like, well, here's some advice. If you don't want somebody to be charged, don't call the police. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you know, they call police on, yeah. on a loved one. And now yeah. they're saying, well, I don't really want it to go ahead. Dude, yeah. if you don't want your wife charged, don't call the police because now she is. And there's a whole process, and you know that's a perfect, that's a great example because it's a domestic-related offense. If it goes all the way through, and the charge is withdrawn or they're acquitted, and that person wants to become a teacher, they're f***ed over because they have this. Because our police think it's important to have these records and yet disclose them. Our government has done nothing to protect innocent people. Nothing. They have run roughshod over the presumption of innocence and said, we just don't care because we want to keep records on anybody charged with an offense. And who cares about their careers? Who cares about their, the rest of their lives? Now try and even get into the border in the United States with the insanity there. You have an outstanding charge. People are getting turned away at the border. Mm -hmm. I actually have been kind of surprised. Like We get calls quite often from yeah. complainants who are looking for legal help to try and get charges withdrawn. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of times. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, frankly, I have not a lot of patience for that because it's like, you know, if people, I, I still find it hard not to realize if you call the police, you don't understand it starts a chain of events that's going to be really well, difficult. But yeah. again, this misinformation from advocacy groups who have the ear of the media and they publish all these things saying, oh, you know, police don't take domestic violence seriously enough. So they're being misinformed that, you know, they, they think it's not serious to make an allegation because... Oh, well, the percentages are so low that they'll actually be charged. That's, yeah. that's the narrative that's being put out there. And I think that's why they, they believe that it'll just be a sort of like a slap on the wrist or something like that. And they don't understand a it's a process. And then, yeah. and then once that process kicks in, you're locked into it. So, so, so it's interesting for this segment of what we're talking about. The, the point to be made here is 
aside from the fact that I truly feel, and I think we agree that we're we're living in a police state where we're seeing that we're we're being uh, followed more and and more data on us, but we we are in a situation where advocate groups who espouse certain beliefs with maybe soft studies and soft information, if I can put it that way. We're not really dealing with true studies or statistics to support something. will cause to be put in place policies that are incredibly detrimental to people who are innocent and get caught up in this system. And it's, it's going to be an ongoing problem because we don't see anybody who has any at all political strength to move forward to put into place legislation that would say, even on a vulnerable sector search, this should not be disclosed. Because we had legislation in Ontario that said if it's not a finding of guilt, it can't be disclosed, but for a vulnerable sector search, which could be any number of jobs. Yeah, yeah. and and is still premised on the you know uh, theory that we don't accept anywhere else, which is where there's smoke, there's fire. And thus, if yeah. you were acquitted, uh, so the charges were withdrawn, it was likely because of some sly lawyer, not really because you were innocent, right? It was some technicality. Well, that's great. You know, how do you argue against that? You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's bad. It's bad. We, we're living in an age where being found not guilty of something, at least in Canada, is still a mark on you as a, as a piece of character. And it's life-altering. And we're not getting... We're, there's so much attention on this one side... But the carnage on the other side of those who are truly innocent is not being reported on, not being spoken about, and it's not. And we don't really have good advocacy, aside from, frankly, as far as I can tell, us. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, thinking about this, you know, undermining of presumption of innocence and so on that we've touched on before is like, I really have to mention a recent Supreme Court uh, webcast. They haven't made their decision yet, but it was in a case. Um, it was the Sullivan and Chan thing, but it. An attorney general, and I, I've said for a couple of years, you know, if we don't care about wrongful convictions anymore, why don't they just say it, right? So an attorney general, and I won't say which province, submitted a factum and it was brought to their attention, thankfully by one of the Supreme Court judges, that this one paragraph suggests that the law in dispute, being challenged constitutionally, um, will only affect a few individuals. It's such a rare thing that this case would come up and only a few individuals might end up being convicted where there's a reasonable doubt. But the um, you know salutary effects, like the benefit to society are so much greater that it's worth those few individuals being sacrificed for the greater good. Yeah, and, and just <laughs> so everybody good. understands when they're watching this, what, what is that Supreme Court of Canada case? What's, what's it it's, about? Um, it's Sullivan, R.V. Sullivan, and it's also, it's actually a combination of Sullivan and Chan. The webcast is available and it was, it was heard in October. But it's about alcohol and it's about intoxication. It's about extreme intoxication alcohol. being used as a defense. And then the parliament passed a, uh, some legislation that barred people from using that defense, um, even where they uh, were found to be in a state of automatism, where they weren't actually understanding who they were, what they were doing or anything like that. So, And it's a reverse on this defense so that you actually have to prove you were in that state, right? You can't just claim it and then the Crown has to disprove it. You, you actually, there's, there's generally witnesses to it and it's rarely alcohol. Um, the only cases I've seen so far involve um, either prescription or non-prescription drugs where the person had a bizarre reaction to it. 
and they they thought they were on a mission from God, or like they didn't understand yeah. who they were even like attacking. The, the the facts in um, I forget if it's Sultan or Chan. Both of them are very very sad cases in which um, uh, you know people ended up. Attacking killing their parents. Their, their parents uh, in both cases, in which they had no animus, no reason. It was really just um, self-induced uh, psychosis resulting from the consumption. In this, in one case, it was magic mushrooms. I Psilocybin. think. Psilocybin. Right. Yeah. Um, so he had you know, some sort of like history of concussions from sports or something. They think might have had something to do with his. Reaction. Yeah. So this. A long time ago, legislation came in that said any self-induced psychosis. So if you take cocaine or psilocybin or something that creates a psychoactive reaction, which causes a psychosis, and you act in that psychosis and do something criminal, that's not defense because it's self-induced. The reality, though, is that you may have a slight predisposition, and it reacts with you in a certain way. It could be an organic issue. It could be something else, maybe caused by... Uh, some sort of traumatic brain injury or whatever, but that was a situation where you could not advance that defense. And these were tragic cases where, in fact, they had psychosis, murders ensued, and um, they could be factually innocent because they don't have, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, uh, they're, they're innocent because they don't have the volition for it. Yeah, the acts the acts have occurred, but when I mean factories, they never Sullivan. had the mental intent. Sullivan was actually trying to commit suicide, and he took handfuls of Wellbutrin, yeah. and uh, he intended to kill only himself, and then that didn't succeed, and he ended up still being conscious, but in a state where he didn't understand who he was or who, who anybody else was. So it wasn't even just a matter of recklessly trying to get high. You know, his his intended victim was himself. And so that was that was an even sadder case, I think. But um, yeah, but, but it's so rare for this defense to <clears throat> to be used. But um, but when it applies, the Supreme Court had already determined in another case called Daviel, like and it was like twenty five years ago. Yeah. they said that it should be available. But Parliament rushed off and passed this legislation. And the main thing that was you know that was being uh, the Court of Appeal said, yeah, it's not constitutional in Ontario, and. The main reason was just that they've substituted what you're guilty of. And so Parliament can go make it criminal criminal intoxication or something like that, like criminal negligence of some sort. In but the crime that you're that you're charged with is the act of self intoxicating because you reached that point. You can't just say because you self intoxicated, you're guilty of whatever thing happened afterwards. You're not you're not absolved. You're substituting. Because of the legislation, you're not absolved of the act that you committed because your mental intent, intent is missing because of your consumption of an intoxicant. But, but what that really brought us to as part of this overall discussion we're having is shitty policy, yeah. right? The shitty policy is... And the concept that it would be, you know, it's worth sacrificing these few people who really shouldn't be convicted right. for the greater good of society. Because you really can have an individual who never in a million years, but for the psychosis caused by this intoxicant would never have done what they've done. So the mental intent's not there. So the policy then is to prevent people from escaping liability and other offenses in Davio's about sexual assault uh, by self-induced intoxication. So the policy is to protect a certain segment of potential victims to the sacrifice of others. So it's again about shitty policy, in my opinion, 
Because when you relate that back to what we were speaking about is the policy behind the police being able to keep these records is that we want to track individuals who are charged with domestic and sexual related offenses. It goes way back to Paul Bernardo. Because they never kept, uh, each different jurisdiction never kept the records. You could have maybe connected charges. And so now they keep everything because of that, what happened, because of the circumstance in that case, and to try and track it. Shitty policy results in more shitty policy where people who are innocent still have their lives fucked over because of shitty policy. And in a case like what we have before Supreme Court of Canada now, where there may be some individuals, very, very rare cases, where somebody does not have that mental intent, still can be found guilty. Again, we're seeing certain policies in place because of some greater good or some greater whatever, and people are sacrificed. And it's, it's, it's actually a real issue, and it's bad. And what annoys me, because I actually am one of these idiots who actually reads the House of Commons <laughs> minutes, <laughs> right? But when you go through all the minutes and the presentations... You love boring reading. I know. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, I'm a geek. But uh, no, when, you, when I've read through the minutes a number of times, I've actually seen them um, say, should we go, you know, put this in for reference to the Supreme Court before we pass this? Yeah. And they say, mm, yeah. I've literally seen them say in, in Parliament, we don't trust the Supreme Court. So, you know, they when you're passing some serious law that's already had a ruling against it, if they don't, first check it to see if it really is constitutional, then like what we see, it goes on for decades, like 25 years, I think, for the Daviol thing, right. so, where so, you get a new law that's unconstitutional. In the meantime, for 25 years, people have been denied this defense so, when some of them yeah. should have had it. So you should just explain what it means. So there's a, a, a process by which, because generally the way a matter gets before the Supreme Court is you know, Parliament passes it or some public, you know, government passes it. Uh, somebody gets convicted or confronts it. Um, then they challenge it at the, you know, first instant court. Then it goes up to the Court of Appeal. Then they seek leave to the Supreme Court. But, you know, in our Constitution, we have a provision that allows us, you know, allows Parliament to do what's called a reference, which means let's just go straight up to the Supreme Court, not put everybody through the nonsense, uh, and first uh, make sure that the law that we're passing passes constitutional muster. So uh, the most, um, uh, the last that I can remember had to do with the referendum uh, changes to six. Uh, for the Quebec referendum, you know, there was a law passed by Parliament after the last Quebec referendum in uh, the mid-90s to see whether, in fact, the law as drafted passed constitutional mustard. And they should be using it more often. To Actually, be there's one more recent, which is oh. much more boring, Senate reform. 2014. You're right. You're out. No, you're 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 right. I yeah. completely forgot I'm not about that, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I no. actually read that. <laughs> but no, but but this yeah. is a really great point. Yeah. And I think we should pause on this. Why for a not? Why not? Actually, like yeah. F- why not? Take a moment before you subject the population to an unconstitutional law. Yeah, you know, I, I was, you know, I was a, you know, a, a great real estate agent and I got popular in Brampton and 
or, or Mississauga or, or, or Vaughn and I ran to become an MP and I got elected. Now I have a piece of legislation I want to put together and I get all my people to help me and, and somehow it gets, gets energy and, and it's, 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 it strikes the right political bullshit and people stand behind it. Now it becomes a law because I know so much about it. Uh, and why shouldn't that go to a reference? Why should some piece of very important legislation impacting criminal justice go to the Supreme Court of Canada prior to it becoming law and saying, what do you think? Because we, we appoint you and we trust you. So why don't you help us figure out if this is correct? No, why should we especially, do that? Why should we do that? Because we know better. when the legislation is drafted in response to the Supreme Court deeming something else con- <laughs> unconstitutional. Like yeah. the prostitution laws. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, should they double check if their new prostitution, anti-prostitution laws are constitutional? Mm. No, I don't think so. <laughs> Let's just create another line yeah. of argument that will go all the way up again. We, we see this all the time. And, and, and you know, it, it's interesting. We have this wonderful ability in Canada from our constitution to check the constitutional validity of drafted legislation by parliament. But they're too egotistical to do that. Or are they just whores to the public vote? Sorry, did I? I'm so sorry. I, did I say that? Or are they whores to the public vote? Well, I mean, clearly it does play a big role. You know, whore, I mean, is that, are they whores to the public vote? We have an audience here tonight. No? Let's take a vote. What do we think? Marcy? No. Max? Well, the whole concept. They're lobbyists? They're whores to the lobbyists. <sighs> the whole concept yeah, of taking it. Going with lobbyists. So we've got. Two, three lobbyists, one saying, you're agreeing with me, whores to the public, well, we too. Agree whores. Right. Yeah. Just, who's the whore? Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with being a whore, frankly, yeah, but I, it's a bad word I'm using. That's why they built, on, uh, built in that exception, so that whores can't be prosecuted. <laughs> and I, you know what? And I don't mean that term in a derogatory way. I mean, Okay, now we're getting carried away. No, no, but the reality is it's pandering to pieces of shit, uh when we shouldn't have to. And we should have legitimate legislation that passes constitutional muster, and it doesn't. And we have this wonderful mechanism here, and we don't use it because our government's not responsible. And we're going to wrap up. We're going to close the loop on this. But it comes back to shitty policy because we're pandering to whatever views that they want for political interests, which harm innocent people. All right, what do we want to segue to? Because I don't know what the segue to it is. Segue to is like, well, you know, the public interest in things that are going on, laws and courts and so on. Let's talk about Kyle Rittenhouse. Mm, Not a Canadian thing. Let's not. The judge. What did the judge say about using the term victim? Okay, great point, Ben. You're such a great, you guys are great producers. I love you. So, So, okay, so the Rittenhouse case is, this is in the United States. That's where the... 17-year-old drove an hour to go down to this protest to protect public property. I think, AR- his, I think his mother drove him. That's <laughs> even better. With an AR-15. Was it, it's an AR-15 or an yeah. AR-15? Yeah, an AR-15, an assault rifle. And he wanted to go protect public during this uh, this protest. And I think uh, we should actually pause there for a second to say, like, for Canadians listening to this, we think this sounds insane, right? But for oh, Americans, yeah. their right to bear arms is... You know, uh, it plays a big role in this. And then also the fact that there had been a lot of Antifa protests, you know, that were being called peaceful protests 
even while the journalists said that there were fires burning in the background behind them, numerous stores were, were destroyed and so on. These were not peaceful protests going on. Look, legitimately, look, it, it's not for us to comment that much on U.S. But there politics. is a background, too. There's a context and there's a background. There's a lot playing out there. And, and there's, there's a battle going on between racism... You know, discri historical discrimination and 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 you know bad policing and killing of innocent civilians because of their color or background. We, we get all that. We're just simply dealing with something here where you have an optic where there is a protest going on and there may be going on, but then this seventeen-year-old driven down by a parent or not driven down by a parent with a an assault rifle is there for some purpose to protect property, winds up being chased by somebody for whatever reason, shoot who's unarmed, killing him, then hit over the head. It's you, Can you oil the chair? It was first a table, now it's the chair. I'll Anyways, get right on that. All right. I got nothing else to don't do. Don't forget the f***ing thing with the Yeah, uh, the insurance panel. thing. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so uh, it's great to have somebody who can do like that. Um, so anyway, so uh, the, the second person hits him over the head with a skateboard, gets killed, and then the third person who survived, who was a paramedic, was down there to help, but was carrying a, a weapon, pointed the firearm at the individual, gets shot, and has his arm almost evaporated. And then the trial is going on, and Rittenhouse testified. And the point, which is really great, raised here by Ben, is that at the beginning of the trial, there were motions not to call the two deceased and the one who survived victims, which is extremely interesting, because um, in that case they were trying to say that by calling them victims, that was a loaded term because they may have been agitators. So the judge, who's an idiot, if you listen to his f***ing jury, his, his, his closing instructions, it's like unintelligible. It's like, you know, God bless Justice Watt in Canada who has this book and our judges do a fabulous job of jury instruction. You watch a jury instruction in the United States, it's like bad snakes and ladders. It's horrible. But anyways... He says you can call them agitators, protesters, or a bunch of other names. And, you know, frankly, I, we push in Canada to say a complainant's a complainant's not a victim until a decision is made. If somebody's dead, sometimes you can refer to them as a victim. But, you know... A victim of whom? We don't know. But, but it's a victim of something. But anyways, they're dead. So anyways, it was a very loaded situation. Depends if it's a self-defense case, I still say. But what's really, what's really interesting in this, this case in the United States is is, you know, what's going on with self-defense, but... Then they're a victim of their own hubris. <laughs> wow, that's very high brow, yeah. yeah. But, but what's interesting here is, what is the pressure to a juror uh, or a trier of fact in the United States in a case which is so charged with discrimination and racism and, 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 and whatever else, what's the impact? Because we've seen in the United States where certain jurors aren't going to be named, people are going to use pseudonyms. Do we see any of this reflected in Canada? Let's open this up for discussion. Well, th this goes back, you know, the, the to my uh, recollection, it was uh, the Rodney King case, right? When the first acquittal came out, there were the that's riots. That's like the Atari of yeah, protests. that's it. Well, after the, the initial acquittal, uh, there were, of course, the riots that were very uh, significant. And then there was the uh, retrial, right? There was, uh, you know, an appeal, a successful appeal, new trial, and lo and behold, they were all found guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, one can't help but think that the uh, 
effect it had on the community of an acquittal would, uh, you know, have an impact on 12 men and women who can say, all right, we sacrificed the accused in this case uh, to prevent the, you know, the blowback, which is who knows how many other dead and millions, if not, you know, tens of millions of dollars of damage and so on and so forth. And it's a serious concern. We're quite lucky here in Canada, we haven't had those sorts of reactions. Um, you know, it's just, we're not, we're not there yet. And yeah. hopefully we don't get there. Well, we're starting to see bubbling of it, but you know, one can have a lot of sympathy if you're so unlucky to be picked as a juror. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who want to be on it, but they could be very nervous. Oh, yes. In a high-profile case, to try and listen to the evidence and render an unbiased decision um, and have your name, your f***ing address out there, your employment, and all that out there in the United States and be subject to all sorts of stuff on social media and to death threats and to all, you know, everything else that comes. I mean, you can think about the erosion of the right to a fair trial. Wherever well, you I can stand think on of this one. issue. I, I know of a, a trial, um, Daniel Holtzclaw, who was a, a Oklahoma police officer. He was charged with multiple assaults of um, black women who in the area. And so, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard his name. His trial, they had um, the... Uh, so not not the attorney general. Um, what do they call them down there? District district, district attorney. attorney. Yeah. Pers- personally approved the protest application for people who wanted to protest outside, but they had people taking photographs of the jury members inside the trial um, courtroom. They talked at one point about moving because you could hear the protesters outside from the courtroom, and there was somebody in there queuing them because every time the defense lawyer was asking questions, they were chanting. And as Bitcoin, soon as the they judge, were chanting Bitcoin. They got paid no. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin? To, Bitcoin to chant, maybe. It's an inside joke. So, um, what's the other one? Ethereum, crypto, 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 Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. Okay, sorry, somehow, cryptocurrency. Some, okay, somehow, it's all you know. Crypto would have solved the problem. So, um, <laughs> so uh, the, they would be chanting when the defense lawyer was trying to to cross examine and do stuff, and as soon as the the judge started talking, it would stop. And then as soon as the defense started talking again, it was like you could hear them being, somebody in the courtroom was queuing. And uh, there were, it was clear that the jury members had people taking photographs of them and there were threats going on. It was a circus, an absolute circus. Yeah. And, and you know, the tragedy of this is that you, you, you have unnecessary killings in this case, just completely unnecessary. And they're tragedies. And there is serious systemic racism and abuses going on in the United States, and we see it to a lesser extent in Canada, but it exists. We don't want this overshadowed by having trials that are mired down in unfairness and threats and all sorts of other stuff going on on the outside that that harms what principles are trying to be protected and what advances are trying to be made in justice. And, and that's a real shame, and we're seeing that play out now. And we are seeing it a bit here in Canada. And I mean, it's hard when, when there's like really high profile cases. It's hard to imagine that somebody has heard nothing about it. I mean, you ask jury members, do you know anything about it? 
but in certain cases it's near impossible to find 12 people who who've not actually heard anything but i I, in the come, news. I come back to i'm going to be repetitive because we had this in the last episode how disappointed i was that when i actually gave public commentary about the right to bail in a high profile case involving the death of an officer and i was simply just talking about the bail system that there was such a visceral reaction of hatred towards me for just talking about that that i am now seeing a bubbling over of opinions ideologies and resentment of presumption of innocence because of the high profile nature of certain offenses and that's problematic and we've been to a certain extent immune from that in Canada because we've had a very good civilized balanced approach in Canada that I think and I've said this a billion times over we should be proud of across the world this is a as all the complaints that we have this is a beacon for the rest of the world as to how to run a justice system but it's bubbling over now and we are deciding that we want to live in a state where we're willing to give away rights we're willing to sacrifice the presumption of innocence and we're willing to vilify people who talk about our rights mm-hmm. yeah and well and it gets politicized too so it's just like everything's far right if it's not you know a certain media you know narrative or whatever it's like I mean, it's unfortunate to put it that way. There are some some media outlets that that uh, that crypto? S- still have a, that still uh, promote crypto. Christopher. <laughs> um, but the majority is like you just don't get published, and and now Trudeau has this whole thing about trying to stop, um, like I don't know, propaganda or misinformation or whatever. It's like he wants to silence people and that's going to be a whole other deal that i'm sure we can talk about (laughs) it it's a it's it's a sad statement an example of where things have gotten and there's so much fraction in the united states there's so much polarization and anger you see it over so many things it's it's sad but we're seeing we're starting to see ripple effects here in canada and you know we really really need to remain vigilant here to try and prevent us from going down that road. And and that's why I keep, unfortunately, I think for the last two episodes, you know, the points of what we're trying to talk about is not eroding our rights by having a balanced, civilized society, by recognizing innocence, by not having policies to turn things into really bad situations for people who are innocent. And, and, and frankly, it flows into politics. I mean, we, we gotta be, we're, we're on a cusp. It bothers me, and I'm worried about it. Yeah. And I'd like to plant more trees. I really would like us. I think we need more trees. All right. We tired now? I'm exhausted. You had a difficult day in court. I know, and I still got to prep some more. So it's now at about, it's about an hour since we've been into this, and you still have to work after this? You mean lawyers actually work late hours? I don't know. Uh, it must be just me. I'm it just sure. flows out of our us without any real. Thank yeah. you for doing that work because you're going to help that client. And yes, Diana, we're all team. And cheers. Thank you. Next week we'll have more to talk about. So, on closing, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Thank you. Love you all. Don't live in a. F- <laughs>
fucking police state. Don't give away your rights. Stand up to that. Think about the policies. What is and also, if you want to send us questions uh, or topics to talk about, then you can you can email us at notonrecordpodcast at gmail.com. And we will actually read those emails and try to answer your questions. And Marcy, thank you again for coming out. Thank you, Ben and Max. And, and our audience. Again? We have Rates, a dedicated review, audience here. Thank you very much. Up? Three R's. Like. Oh, yeah. That's subscribe. It. Share. Share. Share and leave a review if you're listening. On That'd Apple. be really nice. Thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> Good night, guys. Do with ours. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>